Welcome to the second episode of Books of Titans. I'm Jason Staples, together with Eric Rostad, and this podcast is dedicated to the influences of influencers, the books that have helped shape the prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and other thought leaders of our time. We'll talk about what makes these books so important and influential, and we'll at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion on these important works. Today, we're going to cover The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing by Al Reese and Jack Trout, a short book focused on the 22 definitive rules that govern the laws of marketing. This book was recommended by Tim Ferriss in The Tools of Titans, and I also was had this book re- recommended to me by... Um, by someone named Jason Staples, who uh, is the co-host here. Yeah. Let, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I actually, uh, I, I purchased this book uh, for my uh, my father-in-law a while back uh, and had suggested it to Eric uh, some time back. And then when Eric decided to go through uh, Tools of Titans and, and look through this, he said, oh, that yeah, that's one of the ones on my list now that I've, uh, now that I've looked through that. So uh, it wound up being uh, one that showed up uh, multiple times for him. And I, I think uh, it's well worth the read, uh, as we'll see in our discussion throughout uh, today. So uh, let's go ahead and talk about the authors. And Eric, you uh, put this together, so I'll let you take it. Yeah, so Al, Al Reese, whose Twitter handle is Al Reese Official. And Reese, he spells R-I-E-S. And Jack Trout, uh, Jack Trout's on Twitter, just at Jack Trout. So about Al, Al's co-founder and chairman of the Atlanta-based consulting firm Reese and Reese, and the other Reese in that is his partner and daughter Laura Reese. Uh, he was a 2016 inductee into the Marketing Hall of Fame. For Jack Trout, in the fall of 2002, he began working with the United States Department of State in order to train new diplomats in the art of projecting a positive image of American overseas as part of the Propaganda America campaign. Sorry, the Brand, <laughs> the American, brand campaign, American campaign, which sought to improve public opinion about the upcoming Iraq war. Both of them have worked at GE before starting marketing companies and are probably best known, are one of the world's best known marketing dual uh, strategists. Their books, including Marketing Warfare, Bottom Up Marketing, Horse Sense, and Positioning, have been published in more than 15 languages and their consulting work has taken them into many of the world's largest corporations in North America, South America, and the Far East. Yeah, so let's so uh, starting. Let's uh, let's just uh, say uh, up front uh, that aside from um, not quite uh, managing to pull off uh, <laughs> the, the the good branding of the Iraq War, uh, this pair this pair is about as a, as much of a power duo as you can get in in marketing. Uh, I, as I recall, both of them are in the uh, uh, marketing Hall of Fame, aren't they? I, I believe Jack is now too, but uh, Al certainly is. I, I would assume. I would assume so. Yeah. Anyhow, um, let's go ahead and get started with favorite quotes. Eric, you had a couple. Yeah, my favorite one uh, is towards the beginning of the book, and it's "Marketing is a battle of perceptions, not products." And we will we will discuss that a lot uh, upcoming here. The second one is more money is wasted in marketing than in any other human activity outside government activities, of course, uh, which I thought was was funny. And then uh, also kind of the sad state of affairs in in marketing uh, and in government. So much money being wasted and in government. Um, yeah, th- yeah. And that actually that one displays a little bit of the the tongue in cheek edge that this book is written with. I mean, this book 
does come off as though it was written without a whole lot of editing uh, in terms of, you know, tone or whatever. They decide they it's it seems like they sat down, they they sketched the outline and put the laws together and then just basically went with what they with what they had. And there's not a whole lot they hold back in this book, which I actually kind of liked. Um, yeah. So I had a, I had a, uh, a couple of favorite quotes here, uh, one of which is uh, the single most wasteful thing you can do in marketing is to try to change a mind. Uh, and along with that, they said you can't change a mind once a mind is made up. It's like going head to head against an entrenched enemy. The charge of the light brigade brigade at Balaclava being history's most famous example, closely followed by Pickett's fiasco at Gettysburg, basically um, saying that if if somebody else's mind is already made up on something and you're trying to change that with marketing, then it, it's just not going to work. And I, I think that 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 uh, again, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get in and get in later. But I think that that principle operates on so many levels. I mean, one of my favorite films is, uh, is Inception. And one of the things that Inception talks about is how uh, the mind, how people's subconscious uh, will resist new ideas or ideas that are in conflict with the things that they've embraced before. And, uh, and, and I think that's absolutely true. As someone with a lot of teaching experience, that's absolutely true. It's very, very hard to change a mind. And the only way to really change a mind is to, is to kind of do it uh, very gradually and, uh, very subtly. It's, it's very, it's something you don't, don't do very well, uh, by, um, introducing new information, for example. Uh, the other favorite that I had there, uh, though, is you can't stand for something if you chase after everything. And I really liked that quote, uh, because again, it got, it got to one of the things that, that, when we, when we get a little bit further in that I'm going to emphasize is one of the takeaways that I, I, I really get from this book. And that's the importance of discipline. Uh, and, and specifically in this case, disciplining to, uh, instead of trying to, to go after anything that might produce success, narrowing to the one or two things that, that you really can, can focus on so that you can dominate those categories and so that you can own a word in, in the mind and that sort of thing. Uh, and that that is really the only way to sustain, really to get or sustain uh, lasting success. And if you try to go for too much, then you're going to wind up in trouble. I, I thought that quote, uh, the, again, you can't stand for something if you chase after everything uh, was really well put. And it reminds me a lot of a lot of stuff that, that Steve Jobs said over the years uh, about the importance of focus and the importance of, of, uh, of saying no and all of these things. Uh, you could see a lot of, uh, a lot of these guys influence in, you know, what jobs would say, uh, and, and st some stuff that Peter Drucker has written. There's a lot of that, uh, that a lot of some of these principles that, that are going to come up more than once, uh, over the course of our readings, I'm quite certain because, uh, uh, these are these, I'm not sure, uh, everything that they put in there is, is exactly an immutable law, but some of these things are really principles that are pretty close to immutable. So, uh, with that, let's go ahead and flip to the big picture, uh, the overview and initial reactions. Okay. And I'll start out and, and, and even to take a, a step back here uh, to put this book into perspective. It was written in 1993 and the word immutable means unchanging over time. So it, it's interesting to have read a book that was written uh, that long ago and to consider are these actually are these laws actually unchanging over time? Are they immutable? Uh, and, and that was one of the, the things I enjoyed about reading this book. And, and one of the, the take takeaways I had 
is I would I would find myself arguing with the authors about one particular law only to have the next law address my point of contention. So the book is just written with the 22 laws right in order. And, and I would be arguing with them in my head uh, and in the margins with my notes uh, that, well, this doesn't hold up with this company in this example. And, and then the next law would, would uh, kind of expand on that and, and hit my objection. So I thought that was pretty, pretty neat. There are 22 immutable laws, but they kind of work in tandem, uh, some of them with each other. Yeah. And there is a newer version of this that was, that was done, uh, I want to say in like 20, 2009, something like that, where it's a republication and they updated some things and, you know, for the internet era and everything. And I actually do suggest going with the older version in part because of the benefit of hindsight and looking at some of these things and because they're, they're making a lot of pro, uh, projections based on mm -hmm. what they expect moving forward. And it is really interesting to see you know, sort of how things hold, how they nailed certain things, how some things didn't go the way that they expected, but you can kind of see why actually. And it's not necessarily that the immutable law that they're, that they're proclaiming actually failed. It's that the company did something a little bit different or, or the market changed in some way. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that to me, I think was, was really valuable. Uh, like you said, it was very interesting to read, uh, the book, uh, in 2017, given, uh, given that, you know, we're, we're basically, you know, tw 23 years after, after the, after the publication, uh, 20, 23, 24 years after the publication. Uh, and, and again, there's, there's just a lot there to be able to actually chew on and say, well, is what they said about Mercedes Benz or, or whomever, correct. Has that held up? And, and by and large, the stuff in this book, I think did hold up pretty darn well. Yeah. Yeah. And so just, just to clarify, you did read the old version then, right? Yes. I read the 1993 version. Okay. Yeah. So, and so did I, and you had, you had purchased the new version for me. Um, and I, I had also purchased the old version and, and I had, I'd read the old version. So, um, interesting because yeah, the one that I purchased for you was supposed to, to be the old version. So they, that it was mislisted oh, really? on Amazon. Interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was, it was the, uh, the new, the new paperback version. So, huh. but yeah, well, I'm glad we both read the, <laughs> the old version. I think anyone who, who listens to this podcast and then reads the new version, um, that will also be interesting for, for that person. Uh, one other thing that I got out of the book, I think it's just a great, framework for thinking about a company and it could be a big company. It could be a small company. Uh, Jason, I told you this uh, a while ago, but I, I, I was riding in the car the other day and I, uh, I live right by a highway and, and along that highway are just a number of different companies. And I just found myself looking at these different companies and thinking about how they were positioning themselves. And, but it was within the framework of this book and it, it was just helpful. It, it provided a way to look at the company to see how they were doing things. Uh, I've always loved watching um, the Super Bowl for the ads just to, to see how companies have uh, have positioned themselves, what they're doing, what they're trying to say. And this book just gives you more of a framework to, to view that and see if if people are, if what they're doing is making sense, if they're going outside of these laws or, or if they're within these laws. Yeah. And, and, and actually, when you talk about a framework, you know, one of the things that, again, I think that this book, it's, it's talking about marketing, but I think you're absolutely right in the sense that the way that they're putting this across, 
it's not so much about marketing only. It's it's mar marketing in the way that they're putting this across in the book is actually the entire aspect of running the company. So if you're going to do anything in business, if you're going to if you're going to be an entrepreneur, if you're going to be a creative, then you have you have a brand. And actually, they've got another book. Uh, what uh, uh, reason his daughter, uh, I believe, uh, have what the 22 immutable laws of branding. Um, but I, you know, again, I'm not sure that that I haven't read that one, but I'm not sure that it would be necessary because again, everything is about these days for creatives, for everybody else. It's about establishing a brand. And mm -hmm. in order to establish the brand, you have to be thinking about the end product, how you're going to, to get things out at the very, at, at, at the very end of the process from the very start. And so how you're going to position, how you're going to market things is actually determinative of how you're going to do things at the on the front end of 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 the business how you're going to handle things as as simple as where you're going to put your factory that stuff matters in marketing mm -hmm. and how you're going to how you're going to manufacture the goods all of these things have some impact in how you then plan to market that and and I think again what you're talking about in terms of framework and how how companies are building themselves Again, this book is useful in 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 that in that it shows how intertwined things like operations are with marketing. You know, the, every little piece of the business has to be, or or an enterprise or a creative uh, endeavor has to be considering the marketing side. I mean, in my in my field, you know, in, uh, as a uh, as an academic, even presenting my research. It's not going to do me any good to present my research if it's not going to do anything and if it's not going to have any uh, any impact in the field. So part mm -hmm. of the necess of the necessary uh, necessary aspect of doing quality research even is thinking about how that research is going to it needs to be presented, how it needs to be marketed in order to be as persuasive as possible within the field mm -hmm. to get eyes on it and all those things. So Th to me, this is a very useful book, regardless of uh, whether or not somebody plans to be the next CEO of Coca-Cola or whatever. This is something that even for your run-of-the-mill creative out there who just wants to, you know, publish a book for for the 1,000 fans, this this there's some useful stuff in here, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, did you have any other um, overall initial reactions to the, to the book? Um, I think one other thing is just in terms of, uh, uh, thinking about their big picture, their basic thesis in this book is really interesting. Uh, and, and the, the thesis, it, it comes along in this, in this quote here, uh, very early in the book, most marketing mistakes stem from the assumption that you're fighting a product battle rooted in reality. All the laws in this book are derived from the exact opposite point of view. And that also is really interesting because, you know, it's a lot of people resist the idea that everything is relative and, you know, perception is reality and so on. But they really make make the point very strongly that in the world of marketing, what matters is entirely perception and that you're fighting a battle to affect how people perceive things. And the fact that something is objectively better doesn't really matter. The quality of the product is secondary 
to how the product is presented, packaged, and branded, and all these other things in order to get some level of perception in the mind of the end end consumer. And that, again, is that's something that in terms of the big picture, that thesis and the way that that ends up getting developed, I think, is really valuable. And it's really it's really thought provoking and worth thinking about, worth considering how that affects everything. Yeah. And it's really the opposite of the you build this and they will come idea. You know, we build we build the best product in the world. People are going to flock to it. That that's not that's not the case. Yeah, you could build the best product in the world, but if nobody knows about it, it doesn't do anybody any good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, building something that's not necessarily the best, but finding a way to make sure that people are aware of it and that people value it. Sometimes, you know, it, 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 uh, when I was writing my dissertation, you know, the, the, the mantra that you hear all the time is uh, the best dissertation is a done dissertation. You know, you have uh, uh, the, uh, a, uh, a good dissertation is a finished dissertation a great dissertation is a published dissertation and a perfect dissertation is neither (laughs) perfect. A perfect dissertation doesn't, uh, doesn't exist. And you know, that, that gets back to this same kind of idea that again, all of these things, it doesn't, the the quality, the end quality of the product. Yeah. It's going to matter at some level, but what really matters is actually having something done that then can be branded and marketed and, and, and made use of, or it's worthless. Mm-hmm. Well, and getting into the, to our nitty gritty section, uh, continuing on this, this idea of, of perception. I, I, when I was reading this book, I, I was struck by how often I hear people say, Oh, that's a great brand, <laughs> but you know that they have never had an, an experience with that brand in their life. So where where did that come from? They've never driven the car. They just said is a great brand. They've never they've never consumed the product. They just said is it uh, is made by a great brand. Oh yeah, Mercedes. They're really reliable, right? Yeah. So where did where does that come from? Marketing, perception, marketing, and and in that quote that that uh, that I said at the beginning, marketing is a battle of perceptions, not not products. Just think about that. And anytime you hear somebody say that's a great that's a great brand or that's a good product take a step back and, and and think have they have they used the product where did that come from where did they get that idea did they just get that, that idea from a commercial did they get it from <laughs> someone who who owns that car but it's a, it's a good question a diamond uh, is forever thing, man a diamond is forever yeah. yep the the other thing that that's really fascinating to me uh is looking at perception of brands in the area of alcohol. And oh, specifically that was, yeah, that was a really good one. In different countries. Uh, as I've traveled, one beer that is viewed as one of the most disgusting beers in the United States be one of the best beers you could buy in a different country and vice versa. And you've got, for instance, like a, a Jose Cuervo tequila uh, is not even 100% agave. But they, it's the way it's marketed is that, is that it's one of the best tequilas here. So people have a really good perception of, of Jose Cuervo, even though it's not a good tequila. Uh, and, and you see this just across a, a number of different types of beer. A beer that is just viewed as disgusting in Germany will be a, a best-selling German ex, uh, import in the United States. And so it's always fascinating to me 
to, to watch these different alcohol brands market and to see what perception they have because it is vastly different by country. They make the point, this is in, uh, like I said, one of the first chapters uh, where they're basically making the point that what matters first, it actually is the first chapter, the law of leadership, it's better to be first than it is to be better. And they say, what's the number one imported beer in the United States? Heineken. Is Heineken considered a really good German beer? Uh, no. But guess what? It was the first imported beer to make a name for itself in America after World War II. And it's still the number one imported beer, at least European imported beer. Why? Well, because it was number one. That's what they say. At that time, it was uh, you know 30% of the market four decades after it had been introduced to the market. Now, you can, you know, try to divide the market a little bit. You can say, well, we're not just going to compete as an imported beer. We're going to compete as a Mexican beer or as a Mexican beer, you know, uh, dedicated to young adventurers or whatever. You, you can find different ways to try to divide that category to impose, to, to, to uh, claim, carve out some space for yourself. And that gets into some of the other immutable laws. But, you know, they basically say, wait a second. It has nothing to do with which beer tastes best. Is Miller mm -hmm. Lite really the best, you know, best tasting light beer in America? Well, um, no, it's the first one that was introduced. So guess what? It's the one that's that tends to be the most uh uh the most um uh the most the, the highest sales. So and, it, and as we uh as we talk about this, I, I have a memory from this is probably either elementary school or middle school being on the bus and half of the, the uh, one side of the bus going tastes great and the other side of the bus going less filling <laughs> and we're, we're middle schoolers, but we're, 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 we're saying, we're repeating these ads word by word, uh, shouting them back at each other at a very young age. And, uh, just, again, well, it's hard to forget the, the models of, arguing about that, right? Uh, yeah, uh, to show the the power of the the marketing and the perception that that creates. Well, I was actually uh, just remembering that the other day about what happened with us at, uh, at 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 my high school. We there was a paper football craze that happened at my high school. I want to say my sophomore, or my my junior year of high school, and it's I think I think largely it was stimulated by a Super Bowl commercial by Bud Light, in which uh, <laughs> they they did a, a version of. A couple Americans basically getting stuck in a, in, in a Godzilla type uh, kung fu movie, where all of a sudden they would there were there were a couple people that were that were uh, that were getting ready to attack and so on, and then the 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 Americans have to defend themselves, and the uh, the villains of course are talking, but it's you know comically overdubbed, you know their mouth the the guy's mouth is moving in some other language, like ridiculously so, and then. The, the the overdub comes in later and you hear fools we will defeat you and their mouth you know kind of comically moving and take your and take your bud light and then you know choose your weapon and then the americans you know they they're they're they're, they're quick on their feet and they produce a paper football and he's oh paper football very clever and the americans wind up winning well guess what everybody ends up re repeating that at lunch hour for like the next year and a half at my high school yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, like you said, nobody's even drinking age, but everybody's talking about Bud Light and, you know, people are playing paper football at, at, uh, at high school lunch hour because of a commercial that happened. 
that is really, really good branding. And it's one of those things where when you think light beer in the United States, you think Miller Lite or Bud Light because of the incredible brand recognition that they've managed to to uh, to impose as a result of uh, of of their marketing efforts. Mm-hmm. Well, and that goes into uh, uh, another hot topic in the book. Uh, if we stay on the topic of of say Budweiser, yeah, <laughs> extension, yeah, and it, well, yeah, law of extension and division, and just overall strategy for a company. So Budweiser, they've got it. They have a great brand name. So how do they? How do they expand on that? Do they have Bud and then Bud Light and then Bud Very Light and then Bud Strawberry Flavored and then Bud Lime? Or do you have do you create a different brand name for each each of those products so as not to to confuse the the consumer or give them give them too many things to choose from? But uh, if you're known as the best beer in America uh, uh, or best American beer. If, if, if that's going to be Budweiser, what is the strategy from that point on? Do you keep the Budweiser name on everything or just keep Budweiser on that one beer? And they definitely had, they definitely had a, 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 a strong stance on this in terms of one of their immutable laws, which, uh, which was. Well, the law of division and then also in the law of, of extension. Uh, but like the law of division, it said basically says over time, uh, the category wide and become more categories and then extension is taking a brand name of a successful product and putting it on a new product. So taking the power of the brand and then putting it on a new product, they say the law of extension is the most violated law by companies. Yes. And, and what specifically is that law of extension? That's the thing. And what it kind of surprised me, but then when I thought about it, it really made a lot of sense. And that is, Actually, you shouldn't just try to extend basically this line extension that they're talking about, uh, the law of line extension. What happens? Well, when you uh, uh, when you uh, when you extend your line, when you try to expand your brand to cover something else, it's going to wind up having negative effects on your overall brand. And, and, And again, they used alcohol as the example. Miller. In the early 70s, Miller, they say, in the early 70s, Miller High Life was barreling along with sales increases averaging 27% a year, and Miller Time was their big thing. And then they say Miller got greedy and introduced Miller Lite, which was a brilliant concept buried under a line-extended name. And they said, the problem is, yeah, in the short term, the two Millers could coexist. You had the blue-collar beer, High Life, and the yuppie beer, the Light. But in the long term, line extension undermines one or the other brand, and so Miller Lite winds up uh, winds up doing really well. However, Miller High Life declines thirteen years in a row, from twenty three point six million barrels in nineteen seventy nine to five point eight million barrels in nineteen ninety one, and they basically say that has ravaged the, the choice to extend their brand to something else. Has ra- you know it ravage it tends to ravage the uh, the 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 original brand that or you end up having having a failure in something else. So you if you're Coca Cola and you introduce some other co- some other cola under another name, it, you might be able to do something else. But if you introduce New Coke, New Coke, well, 
it's going to be a disaster. Why? Because everybody's used to the old Coke and now you've got two competing products and your benefit, this is one of the other laws, is, uh, is that you want to make sure that if you are the first in the market, you, you don't violate your position as the venerable product by suddenly changing everything. Now you've, now you've affected your branding. So then now you have to go back to Coca-Cola classic and it affects everything. Right. So, and this was also one of my favorite uh, quotes in the book as well on the Miller, uh, uh, on the Miller thing where they say, yeah, initially five years or the first five years, they coexisted fine. But once it started, once the, once the, the one brand started cannibalizing the other, the decline is almost uh, impossible to stop. And they say, unless you know what to look for. It's hard to see the effects of line extension, especially for managers focused on their next quarterly report. And then they say, if a bullet took five years to reach a target, very few criminals would be a, a con- a convicted of homicide. And that that is a, a really good insight over a lot of these things in the book, which is which, where they're saying, yeah, these are the effects. It may not seem like it in the short run, but if you're going for the long run, the long run effects are going to be different from what you're going to be able to measure if you've got quarterly focus. And I think that again is a really, really good lesson. And it gets to what, you know, your, your, your basic theme here is in strategy. Well, in my, uh, I've keep writing the, the same thing in, in the margin of, of a lot of the books. Uh, uh, I'm a few books ahead of, of what we're talking about right now. And I keep <laughs> writing the word Russell. And oh, yeah. uh, I, in the yeah. past, I worked at Russell Corporation, and and I just see so so many of the things that that are written about here happen at Russell. And with Russell, you had a, a hundred year old company. It started in 1902. You had a hundred year old company that was focused on on one thing for many years, and then in the latter years, they uh, they became all things to all people. They broke. Well, I mean, for those for those who are less familiar, I mean, we've probably got some younger listeners for whom Russell is is actually. They, they, they don't even really necessarily know Russell. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about Russell here for some of those listeners? Because frankly, Russell kind of died. So yeah. go ahead well, and, and so, give us the history. So Russell, uh, Russell, personal history, I had a pair of Russell shorts in high school and they lasted, I mean, I wore them well into college, but I still have Russell than, shorts from middle school. Yeah, I, and so they were, they were a company known for quality. They were an American company they they uh, produced in America, and uh, in, in the United States, and athletic apparel, athletic apparel, and they were known as kind of the all-American company, just but very high quality. And the quality where you could wear the sweatshirt while you were doing sports, get roughed up in it, and it would hold up. And what they started doing in the '90s is they became more of a marketing company. They moved their headquarters from where they had always been. They moved it to Atlanta. Uh, but just for the marketing portion and the executive leadership team, purchased a number of other companies that did things from hunting gear, uh, all all athletic related, but uh, but just kept kept going with with all these different companies. Major brand and extension, major line brand ex- extension, line extension, and line extension. One of the main things they did is uh, towards the end, they put the Russell line in Walmart and Walmart is famous for taking brands and either getting rid of the brand by copying exactly what they do and putting it under a private label uh, or just selling the brand and then decreasing the value of it because if it's sold at Walmart, it, it it, it no longer has that cachet. 
all the all the while, production moved away from the United States and followed what every other company was doing and started producing in, in other countries. Uh, so a lot of things were going on at the same time, but now you have, have Russell Athletic who, uh, Jason, as you said, uh, most young people probably never even heard of it. Uh, it they, they do just a few uh, jerseys anymore, and it's largely a company that's, that's not known, and the perception of it is horrible now because the, one of the only places you can get it anymore is, is Walmart. So it's just very interesting to, to, to read a book like this and see all the laws that they broke along the way. <laughs> and, and then and, and we'll, I know I'll be bringing the topic back up in, in other books uh, in this series as well. Um, it's a great case study, and, and it'll keep coming up. Yeah, and, and you know, Russell, Russell really should have been given where they were in terms of being first to market as, as athletic apparel. I mean, they were the, the Jersey producer for Notre Dame for decades. Um, mm -hmm. You know, they should have by all rights, by all accounts have been where Under Armour is today. And the one thing I was heard when I was working there is that they did have the technology that Under Armour started using before Under Armour, but they just, you know, the, the, the vision wasn't there. Um, and well, they so got you, complacent in that, yeah, in I, that area. And, and, you know, that, and mm -hmm. that, that also, the other thing is that, again, when, one of the things that you highlighted is that they bought a, a number of companies, their way of addressing, their way of trying to continue to move the company forward was to get bigger, right? They, they got, mm -hmm. they got bigger, they extended their lines. And one of the interesting things that, that, that I, another great line in this book is the bigger the company, the more likely it is that the chief executive has lost touch with the front line. This might be mm -hmm. the single most important factor limiting the growth of a corporation. And that's just, it's brilliant because if you've ever been in some of these large companies, what happens over time is it really is the people on the ground that are going, oh, you know, we've, we've got this new technology that we really should be running with, but the, the upper upper management may not see it. Or, oh, you know, this is what's happening, but the upper, the upper management loses vision or gets a vision of trying to expand by buying a new company or by, by extending into this area or that area rather than innovating and continuing to improve within the actual sphere of the company. And, and then the company ends up, you know, end of, uh, end of lifespan. And, and, and again, Russell's a great example of that. Well, and if, if we uh, we take it to one of the other main parts of the book of, of focus and what you really hit on at the beginning of you can't stand for something if you chase after everything. Yeah. If you're Russell Athletic and you are the all-American brand known for quality and all of a sudden you start producing in other countries with less quality, you've, you've taken away what made you what made you successful for hundred years. Yeah. And they were trying to basically, I mean, at that point they were trying to really stem some losses against Nike, right? Uh, I mean, Nike was Nike and some of these other companies in the nineties were really starting to move out of just shoes and into apparel. And mm -hmm. so they're cutting into that and Russell got threatened and they responded by not by doubling down on what made them distinctive, which is what the 22 immutable laws of marketing, they would have said, recognize what your brand represents in the mind and be more that, right? Mm -hmm. This is your focus. And what do they do? They decide to try to fight the battle on the other people's turf, on the other company's turf. And it's no wonder they get beat. Yeah. 
I love the way that your your quote there, uh, the the riches in the niches, right? Yeah, yeah. One of my one of my uh, entrepreneurship professors in grad school would always say that there's riches in the niches, and then uh, would he would end it with an expletive. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I but I, I, I would is, do that. It is, in and I, so I have I have my own company doing website development, and, and this marketing. is the single. Yeah, in marketing, this is the single hardest thing for me to do is to focus because everything in me says I need to expand. I need to offer more services. I need to do this and that so that people people can can come to me to get to get everything. And what this book just continually drives home is you need to just you need to keep digging deeper into a niche. You need to keep focusing and whether that's focusing on a particular type of client um, or f- really focusing on part- one, the one thing that you do the best, it's, it's the riches are in the niches. It's, it's that quote you said at the beginning, you can't stand for something if you chase after everything. If I'm trying to, to, to offer everything as a company, if, um, if I'm trying to do everything and I'm not focusing, it, it's gonna, it's gonna end in disaster, but it is so <laughs> hard to do because it is so counter counterintuitive. Well, it's again, it's saying no. And how how good are any of us who want to be successful at saying no? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, oh, hey, can you help me out with this? Hey, is is this something you can do? Like, it it takes everything in you know, or for me, like, hey, can you do this book review? Or hey, can you know? Uh, we, we were wondering if you could contribute to this. Well, yeah, I can. And the last thing I want to do is say no, because I mean, what about what, what, what's going to happen if I turn down this opportunity and then they go to somebody else or, you know, I I don't want to turn down an opportunity, but you know what? Sometimes you have to turn down that opportunity because you've got to be focused on the better opportunity that, you know, in terms of vision that you have to, that you have to be preparing for, that you have to be working toward. And that's, that's what's so hard is, is the saying no and potentially disappointing people and potentially turning away customers. I mean, yeah, and not not just disappointing people, but uh, that might be your money for the month. I mean, if, if you're <laughs> yeah. if you're working for yourself, it's you don't have the salary coming in. It's it's getting these jobs. So if if I if I have somebody come to me and 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 say that, can you help me with this or can you do this type of work? Yes, I can. It's not my best area. It's not my focus. It's not what I want to be driving towards in the long term. Uh, but if I say no to this can I pay my bills this month? <laughs> right. So it's, it's, uh, it really puts you in a, a, a weird place, but I, I, in my mind, I'm convinced that if I do focus and if I, if I am standing for something instead of chasing after everything, that it, the long term will be success, but it is so hard to yeah. not take everything just even even for the purpose of saying to to make ends meet. Well, I mean, this and, and to some extent, this connects with the uh, Kevin Kelly idea of one thousand true fans, right? What really matters yeah. is being the. And they keep coming back to this over and over and over again in this book. That what really matters is being the brand, the name, the person, the company in whatever category you can carve out for yourself. It's better to be the 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 company the the brand in a smaller category than it is to be the number three brand in a in a huge category. 
because mm-hmm. ultimately you as you carve out that niche you can find ways to 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 build that and to and to uh to dominate that category but if you try to you know to spread across multiple categories you're not necessarily going to be successful in any. And again, Rees really, and this is not just in this book, but elsewhere, his big thing is uh, marketing is all about taking ownership of a single word or a single concept in the mind of the consumer. Mm-hmm. And that comes across in this book m- numerous times. The aim of marketing is to take ownership to be associated with a word or a phrase. So, you know, and, 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 all you have to do is think about the most powerful brands in America and how they do this, right? And 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 this is associative mark, associative advertising. You you know uh, the the uh, uh, Lexus is what the the relentless pursuit of perfection, right? They want to be associated yeah. with that idea. Uh, you know, Rees really likes the uh, the BMW. Uh, uh, association the uh the what is it the um uh perfect what is it the bmw is the the ultimate driving the ultimate driving yeah that's right um uh yeah ultimate Yeah, Rees really likes the BM. He, he thinks the BMW saying is one of the best, uh, one of the best brands out there. The ultimate driving experience. Uh, you know, Apple think different was their was their thing. You know, that ungrammatical, but uh, but easily memorable that 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 worked right. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you, you think about uh, uh, Pepsi, which they flag as a as a really good example of how to recognize your number two in the category and to carve out that space for yourself. What is Pepsi? They're the new generation. Well, it's because Coke, Coke was first there, and they recognize that first is better than better. So, if you if you can't dislodge first, if you're not there first, then find a way to position yourself as the newcomer, the one for the people who are different. These are things that you know. Even Budweiser, what do they try to associate themselves with? Friendship, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's the stuff that the the latest thing that I just saw a commercial for them lately. You know that that associates Budweiser as being buds together, right? As being friends. And that's, that's what they're trying to market. And so if that's what you're doing, you have to find one, one word. You have to be, you have to really slash down to be that one thing. And that's really hard. And they keep coming back to, you know, this is going to sometimes, if you're the, if you're a smaller business, eh, it may, it may mean that you may have some lean months. You have to make those sacrifices to be focused, but it's going to pay off later. If you're a publicly traded company, well, you know, the quarterly report might not go as well right now, but they keep coming back to branding and marketing is about the long-term vision, the long view, much more than it is about the quarterly earnings report. And that it's just so hard to live that way. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. That one, one major takeaway, this is, this is very difficult stuff and to think through all this and to think, I mean, they talk about don't don't try to exploit your competitor's weakness exploit their strength i mean just great great little tidbits of of uh of insight in this book um law of candor be truthful 
uh, they they keep talking about Avis and how Avis we're number two. always number two, <laughs> and they they would talk about that. Hey, we're number two. We just but work that harder. That makes us really want to be. Yeah, it makes us want to work harder to 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 impress you. Um, in Listerine, they Listerine would talk about how bad it it tasted, but if it tasted that bad, it had to be good for your for your, your breath. Um, yeah, so you combine so honesty I, with with other aspects to really get the right idea, right? Well, we kill germs. Nothing, nothing yeah. tastes this bad. It doesn't kill something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, as as you go through the book, it just uh, all these different laws and, and and seeing how you could how you could put them within your own company, uh, within your own organization, uh, even personally, just how you. How, especially now with the, the whole idea of branding yourself, uh, just how you present yourself personally uh, on social 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 platforms and and all that. Uh, I just was even looking today at, at Instagram and and I follow this one one. Uh, it's a it's a group in Atlanta, and so they're all they're always taking photos of Atlanta, uh, and and I follow them for that reason to to see Atlanta. Well, right now I'll be at a conference in Denver. And so they're taking all these photos in Denver, and I'm thinking, why are you doing this? Why are you posting photos of, of Denver? I followed you to get photos of Atlanta. Why are you showing me photos of Denver? If I wanted to see that, I could follow someone for, for Denver. So even, even something silly like that, uh, it, it's, it's very easy for us on the outside to notice when something goes off-brand or, or tries to ex- ex- expand beyond their reach. It's really hard on the flip side to not when you're in that to not expand beyond your reach, to not to not try to go outside and and um, and bring everyone in as opposed to to focusing. Yeah. And again, that comes back to the, my big takeaway from this is discipline. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the word that I that, like if I were going to get the, the one word that on my, you know, as I went through this, it was like this is the word that I associate with this book. It's discipline in that, you know, at the end of, of, of the 21st rule, which is about, you know, about trends versus fads, they say one way to maintain a long-term demand from your pro- for your product is to never, satis- never totally satisfy the demand. Hmm. What? <laughs> like that, like what company is going to sit there and go, you know what, man, we could sell a hundred thousand units this, this fall and make a lot of money. So let's go ahead and try to let's go ahead and try to limit. Let's turn the, let's 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 limit our supply to ten thousand so that we can keep people on the hook and keep them hungry for our product. How many companies are actually willing to do that? How many yeah. companies are willing to say, you know what, we're we could make more money right now by selling more, but you know what, that's okay. We're not going to do this. And actually, I know of a couple companies that have done that. There's uh, there's uh, a company that that sells uh, ladies handbags uh, that. And I, it's, the name is escaping me, but there's a, uh, it's basically handbags that you actually cannot walk in to a store and buy it. You actually have to be, you have to be basically recommended to get it, and it costs an in, like an insane amount of money. But the the cachet of owning one is so high that all these incredibly wealthy women buy them. They find ways to to, to get them, but you can be a multimillionaire and have no access, no way of getting it because you can't yeah. it, like, they just won't sell it. They won't sell it to you. <laughs> and it reminds me of a, of a funny story. One of the, one, uh, one designer I used to work with at, at Russell said she was at a, a major international airport one time and, and she was, she, she knows fashion and out. 
you know, is all the handbags, what, what, uh, who does everything. And she said she saw a handbag at the airport and knew that that person had to be famous just based on that handbag. And so she noticed the handbag before she even noticed the person. The person ended up being Cheryl Crow, but she she noticed the handbag and knew that whoever had that had to be famous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, and I wish I could remember what the what the specific uh, I think it's a Birkin. Um, OK. Yeah, I, I haven't bought a handbag in a while, so I'm not, yeah, I'm not I, up I, on handbags. I, I don't remember uh, the uh, I don't remember which bag it is. Yes. OK. Yeah, no, no, that's that, that is right. It, it is the Birkin bag. Yeah. So it's a okay. Birkin bag. And the thing is, these bags are not attractive generally. But they, they, uh, the price, so I just looked it up. The price on these ranges from $7,500 or $7,650, I guess, to $150,000 for a bag, <laughs> for a handbag. And they're not necessarily that, like, they, they aren't, like, they're recognizably Birkin. Can you live in it? Because a condo costs that much, too. <laughs> yeah. So the thing is, what they do is they, they release them in in specific boutiques, Hermes boutiques on unpredictable schedules and in limited quantities for the specific purpose of making sure that they never never satisfy the demand. That's discipline and you know what? That company is probably going to be around for a while based on, you know, the immutable laws here because they've 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 not satisfied the demand. They they've maintained their uh, their, their position. And that's, you know, that's ideal is when you can say, well, we've got enough demand that we can just charge and charge really high prices instead of putting this, this product in lots of hands, we'll just put it in fewer hands at higher prices. Mm -hmm. And again, that takes a tremendous amount of discipline and, and, and you and, would see it with, go ahead. Uh, with, with these exclusive brands, uh, they're trying to, to get themselves in everyone's hands. So they, you may have a, a $5,000 uh, bag or something like that, but then they've got a $125 keychain that that the average person could, could uh, you know, splurge and, and spend on. So they feel like they can have a piece of that brand. But what, what does that really do? Like the person that's buying the $5,000 handbag and, and then they see the brand name on everyone else who has who has a keychain that that has that same brand name, it, it really dilutes the brand. Um, but it, it's kind of that quick fix again, where they can have a hundred thousand people buy that, that $125 keychain, So that, that gets them some money, but in the long run, it, it dilutes the brand. Yeah. And, and one other thing, um, that, uh, that, uh, that again, connects with this idea of discipline that makes it so hard to do this is again, the they 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 basically talk about the uh the 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 battle the constant battle between financial people and marketing people and basically you can see their distaste for financial people who are all about the bottom line how can we maximize profits now and basically their whole take is if you market things correctly the finances will take care of themselves you'll make money that'll take care of itself if you get the marketing right and there's this great quote, uh, when the financial people took over, this is from, uh, this is from the end of the law of singularity. 
and this is talking about General Motors. And they say, uh, when, uh, what happened at General Motors is when the financial people took over, the marketing programs collapsed. The financial people's, so their interest, that is the financial people's interest, was in the numbers, not the brands. The irony is that the numbers went south along with the brands. Hmm. And that, that again, that, that, that displays something. There, there's, there's an additional law here that they didn't actually get to. And it reminds me of, uh, of an article by C.S. Lewis, actually, called First and Second Things. There's this principle that, that, that C.S. Lewis puts forward that uh, you can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. And so there, uh, uh, I'll, I'll read a few, a few other quotes from, from, uh, from Lewis on this, where he says, The woman who makes the, a dog the center of her life loses, in the end, not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and all power of enjoying the earlier and only pleasurable levels of intoxication. It's a glorious thing to feel for a moment or two that the whole meaning of the universe is summed up in one woman. Glorious, so long as other duties and pleasures keep tearing you away from her. But clear the decks and so, and, and so arrange your life, it is sometimes feasible, that you will have nothing to do but contemplate her and what happens. And he says, of course, this law has been discovered before, but it will stand rediscovery. It may be stated as follows. Every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good involves the loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice is made. Once again, you can't get second things by putting them first. You get second things only by putting first things first. So, you know, again, and there's another letter that he put in, a, or another uh, uh, quote similar to this that he put in a letter once where he said, first things first, uh, put first things first and we get second things thrown in. Put second things first and we lose both first and second things. And the point that they, that they go with here is marketing and branding are first things when it comes to a product, when it comes to a company, when it comes to a creative and profits and making money and all of this other stuff, that's secondary. And it's so easy in business to get concerned about making money as the first thing, as the primary thing, and the finances, and worry about that as the primary thing. And as soon as those things, as soon as the financial people take over, as soon as it becomes about making money, instead of making great product, instead of marketing that product well, instead of protecting the brand guess what's going to happen? You're going to lose both the brand and then by the brand, by losing the brand, you're going to lose the money. And yeah. to me, well, and one thing I saw at Russell was, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No. Uh, one thing I saw at Russell too was, it was not just even the focus of making money, but um, on trying to save money. So if, if you're, if you're, if you start going to where you're, you're not doing well, then, okay, we got to cut costs. So then the focus becomes, okay, we just got to cut costs and cut costs and cut costs, but at the expense of, of what you're talking about, of, of focusing on the actual things you should be focusing on, marketing and branding. Uh, so it could either be financial people saying, okay, we got we to gotta focus on making the money or we've got to focus on cutting so, so, um, so as to, to get rid of some of the excess. And both of those focuses is, is as you say, on, on the second things as opposed to, to the first. And, and again, what that, involve, what that involves is tremendous 
discipline and vision. You have to have, you have to discipline yourself to understand what your vision is, what the purpose of what you're trying to do is, and really stick to that, even when the money and other things don't necessarily work. And as soon as you start making sacrifices for the money and all those other things, then you, then you're putting yourself in the potential of losing out on what you actually are doing it for. But, you know, you put the first things first and all these other things will be added in, uh, you know, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, in, in good measure, that's the idea. Now that actually brings us to something else that I, I think we wanted to talk about before we came back to the uh, conclusion here. And that's that the one other aspect of this book that was kind of, um, humorous to me, especially, well, I guess maybe less humorous in 2017 than it might've been, uh, even a couple of years ago, but it was interesting to me was how often the Donald came up in this podcast. They really, um, they, they had a lot of things to say or in this book. Yeah. They had a lot of things to say about Donald Trump in this book. And, uh, some of the, and, and quite a few of those things were quite entertaining. Yeah. Yeah, if I look at the uh, index from the book, he is mentioned in three on three different occasions. Uh, so uh, three different of the laws. He has broken three of the the uh, immutable laws of marketing, and they do not let him off lightly. I would say they go again. They they go pretty hard against him. They go uh, as hard as they go against the new Coke, which they thought was just a horrendous disaster. So, yeah, that was really funny just to see what they they said about. Trump. And then, you know, he's this, 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 and this, and then I would write in the margin and now he's president. And so, yeah. But yeah. The other things before that were all very negative, uh, what they're saying he's this, this, and this. So, yeah. I mean, you, you look know, at those. maybe, maybe the, maybe the, the best example of sort of how they view him in this book is in chapter 18, the law of success, where they use Donald Trump as an example of what can go wrong with success. And he say, Donald Trump and Robert Maxwell are two examples of people blinded by early success and untainted by humility. And when yeah. you're blind, it is indeed hard to focus. Mr. Trump's strategy was to put his name on everything, committing the cardinal sin of line extension. Denial seems to go hand in hand with the big ego. When we first met the Donald, his opening remarks were about how people accuse him of having a big ego. He went on to state that it was totally untrue. He did not have a big ego. All the while, it was hard to avoid noticing a three-foot-high brass T sitting on the floor next to his desk. So much for the sermon. <laughs> and, you know, elsewhere, you have, um, uh, you know, this, um, uh, uh, you've got another, another uh, uh, comment about the law of hype. And he says, you know, Oh, you remember the helicopter hype after World War II? You know, every garage would house a helicopter making roads, bridges, and the entire automobile industry obsolete overnight. Did Donald Trump get a helicopter? Did you get yours? Donald actually did get his, but he had to give it back to the bank. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, so, and here's where I wrote in the margin, and this is uh, under the law of perspective. Um, at first, Donald, the Donald was successful. Then he branched out and he put his name on anything the banks would lend him money for. What, what's a Trump? A hotel, three casinos, two condominiums, one airline, one shopping center. And then I wrote one president. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Trump has the thing that's interesting about Trump is that he has been he has been Teflon, right? 
He's yeah. been able to go bankrupt multiple times. He's been able to do all these things and use the Russian oligarchs to get him out of out of out of uh, uh, some of these these situations because he did manage to actually make uh, use his despite making some of these mistakes. He managed to uh, to to parlay some of the early money that he had into some branding that that ultimately led him into the uh, uh, into the uh, into the presidency, uh, remarkably so. But um, but yeah, he. <laughs> He uh, he is used repeatedly in this book as an example of uh, of failure, and of course they they also uh, toward the end of the of the book they basically are saying the law of resources. Uh, they say, listen, the idea is first, money is secondary. He says you first get the idea, then get the money to exploit the idea. There are some shortcuts you can take to get money. Money is not that hard to get, right? Marketing. Ideas, those things are valuable. Those things matter. Those things are, are difficult. Money, not so much. And they use these examples of, well, you can marry into money. You can share your idea by franchising it. Now, you know, of course, we've got uh, crowdsourcing and other, uh, other options that they don't have there. And then they, <laughs> they have this example. You can also find the money at home. Donald Trump would never have gotten anywhere without dad's millions behind him. Shots fired yet again. They, they took their opportunities and uh, very interesting on how they uh, on on their view of Donald Trump, and it matches up with the view of uh, another executive that I I ran into in the uh, financial industry uh, a couple years ago, who had had uh, his his uh, interactions with the Donald over the years, and uh, uh, I ran into the guy on the golf course, and he had uh, he had some <laughs> his he had a very dim view of our now uh, of our current president, but um, you can tell these well, guys and, definitely and did as well. Yeah. In, but in 93, uh, and it says this on page 67, today Trump is $1.4 billion in debt. Uh, so he was not at the top of his game, uh, I, I guess, at that point. Yeah, either. he was so, in one of his many trough periods. Uh, yeah. you know, right now, we're in, I guess right now, as he's president, we're in the manic phase before the, uh, the, the inevitable depressive uh, phase that's going to follow that. But uh, that being said, I suppose it's a good time to uh, come to our conclusions uh, on this book, I mean, we could we could probably talk three hours on this book and not exhaust, not come close to exhausting some of the wisdom in this. Uh, one other thing I, that's that that I love that they cite is Peter's law: the unexpected always happens, and and how you know basically so much of their advice about branding is understanding that the unexpected is going to happen, that it's impossible to fully predict the future. And it's really impossible to predict the future at all. But if you operate by certain principles and you understand how things tend to work and, you know, again, this dovetails with Kevin Kelly's the inevitable. Uh, if you understand sort of where things are headed and you understand trends, then, you know, you can basically, be light on your feet and try to position yourself. But the best thing you can do is position yourself to have ownership in people's minds. And that allows you to be flexible for the future. So you can be prepared for the unexpected. And I loved also in the same page where they talk about Peter's law and the unexpected always happens. They say market research can be more of a problem than a help because it actually does research does best at measuring the past and it can't predict the future. And that reminded me again of, of Steve jobs talking about why Apple didn't do focus groups and things. And he said, well, because you don't know what you, you, you won't know what you want until we show you mm. <laughs> until we create the category. We're making stuff that people didn't know that they want or didn't know that they wanted. And now once we've made it, they'll realize that they wanted it. 
and yeah. and that kind of thing again that's the kind of thinking that this book really uh fosters and really does a great job of that 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 would be to me if you're doing anything creative entrepreneurial or in business this little booklet should be read regularly i mean i i, I highly recommend this book to to the listeners out there yeah and that's that's a key point uh little booklet it is a very <laughs> small book it's a short read um you can get through it very quickly. Yeah, it's, an, so it's a couple hours at max. Yeah, and, and and it is one of those things that you, you should just be able to pick up every now and then and uh, and skim through it just uh, for, for the reminders of it, um, but one that should be referenced regularly. And, and I remember uh, a recent Tim Ferriss podcast episode where he says in his in his place in San Francisco – He's, he has bookshelves, but he he does kind of what uh, a Barnes and Noble or, or another bookstore does, where they flip some of the books so you actually see the cover of the books. So as you're skimming uh, a, a, a huge section of books, there's some where the cover will pop out. And Tim Ferriss does something very similar in his his place, where he either has some pop out like that, or he'll put them on places where he goes to often, like on his refrigerator or. In, in certain areas where he's bound to see that book. And it either just reminds him of, of the lessons of that book, or it's in a place where he can easily pick it up and, and read through it. And this is one of those books. I mean, this, this is a book that I, I would flip on my bookshelf to where I would see it, to where I would be, it would, it would tempt me to, to pick it up and, and look through it every now and then, uh, because it's a great framework and, and it's just a good reminder no matter where you are in your business, uh, Jason, you said this is a great thing for before you get going on on how to how to proceed. But it's also kind of that temptation when you're when you're in the middle of it is to expand and and, and do things that are against these laws. This is also a great book if you're if you're in the middle of of kind of a confusing time for the company uh, or organization to to pick it up and glance through it. Yeah. Th again, this, this to me is, is, is one of those read regularly, you know, flip through, you know, even if you're only reading the, uh, uh, the opening and closing of each chapter, just the chapter headings again, to remind yourself of different things. It's, it's worth, uh, you know, uh, uh hiding this in your heart. If you, if you are, yeah. if you are a, a creative or an entrepreneur or in business or just anybody who generally wants to, uh, be more successful, I think this book is, uh, is definitely, uh, near the top of my list of recommendations for that sort of thing. Uh, there's just there's just a tremendous amount of of wisdom here for how the world works, for how markets work, and for how people work psychologically. Uh, and, and it's a very valuable work, a very valuable, uh, very valuable book. Yeah, and and being 24 years old, I I would say they. I, it was a bold move of them to to put in the word immutable. I mean, they could have just said 22 it's laws good marketing. of marketing, but they said the 22 unchangeable, unchanging over time laws of marketing. And I I I, I think these 22 are still they still play. apply. Even even when I would come up with examples of oh well this doesn't hold up, well the very next next chapter would kind of expand. <laughs> uh, the understanding is like well okay they nailed it yeah, yeah. happened happened to me repeatedly where it's like well you know that's not how that worked. You know, they criticized Microsoft and said, well, Microsoft's not going to be able to do what they're doing here. And then in the next chapter, mm -hmm. you realize what Microsoft was doing 
that actually allowed them to succeed, despite actually not necessarily working with this one. And they would talk about, well, this one can supersede this one if it's done this way. And and there's a lot of nuance there in understanding how that works and, and plenty of space, again, to read and reread to really get a good sense of this. But uh, but yeah, I, I think, uh, once again, uh, definitely pick it up. Definitely uh, pay more attention also to some of the other stuff that Reason and uh, Trout have done, particularly Reese, to learn more about how, again, to brand yourself and market uh, to make sure that you're as successful as possible. All right. Well, that does it for this episode on the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. Next week, we are delving into Natural Born Heroes by Christopher McDougall. And until then, thanks for listening. This has been the Books of Titans podcast. Keep reading, keep improving. I made this.